just west of the Ward Place gates from the San Diego campus of Seton Hall University. He is Mike Dizzy Dizzeri. I am Tommy Chilkoharski. We are Left Coast Pirates. Happy Thanksgiving, Mike. Happy belated Thanksgiving to you, Tom. Mike, you know, a few seasons in the past 25 or 30 years have had big expectations here in our Seton Hall world. A uh, few come to mind right away. I, I think the 92-93 season, the Terry DeHare senior season with Jerry Walker, I think the expectations were high that year. I, I think that team had a Final Four expectation, potentially. I mean, I, I, that was a heartbreaking loss to West Kentucky that year. Last year's team with the 3,000-point scorers, and coming from that big recruiting class, expectations were huge. I think we were expecting that team to be a Sweet 16 team and beyond and try to take the success of that year and build on future recruiting classes. So absolutely. And then one of the highest expectations ever put on a single season had to have been the 2000-2001 season. That was my senior, senior graduating uh, class myself. So as a season ticket holder, we were pretty amped up. I mean, I was the first time in forever that students were lining up outside the gymnasium for their season tickets overnight. It was pretty crazy. And, and just to just to give it a little context, just for just just to remind you, Mike, I know you probably remember, but just to remind you myself. Don't, maybe, you don't you don't have to remind me. I that, that recruiting class was top notch if I'm not mistaken. But but you look at it the previous season, the nineteen ninety nine two thousand season, they were twenty two and ten. They'd make the sweet sixteen with two big overtime wins against Oregon and Temple. They took Oklahoma State to the wire. Hey, things were looking up, Mike. Look, I, I, Duke lost to Florida on the opposite side of that draw. Uh, it, if they had won that game, they had a legit shot to make it to the Final Four. They had basically the, the majority of that team coming back outside of Shaw and, and Kwakanis. So to combine them with the incoming uh, recruiting class that we had, yeah, absolutely the expectations were high. And, and we had a recruiting class like none other. I don't know that we've had a better recruiting class than this just from the number standpoint. We had three Top 26 ranked players coming to Seton Hall. Arguably, on paper, going into the season, that has to be the best recruiting class any Seton Hall coach has brought to the table. Uh, expectations were high, but the drama that season was even higher. And that season came crashing down. And who better to talk to that about it than the man that was sitting there behind the mic for the team? You got Gary Cohen? <laughs> no, not Gary Cohen. We have the color commentator. From that season, and also the Hall Line host, we have joining us today, Mike McEnany. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for taking a time out of your holiday weekend here. So, just to get it started, Mike, you did color for the WSOU team. Uh, how does one become a sports announcer on WSOU? Uh, in my case, they were desperate for help, and... Uh... And I answered the call. I was a sports management major, and then um, I actually joined the station until uh, just before my senior year. I wish I'd done it sooner, but um, but uh, they were looking for people, and um, I kind of thought it'd be useful to go along with my major. And um, I basically emailed the, the station manager, and you know, they, there was no interview process, there was no vetting whatsoever, which was good because I probably wouldn't have made it through that. Um, but in any event, um, I, I basically started uh, uh, on the station. At the end of my junior year, doing uh, engineering, doing a, a four-hour shift on, on Sunday night every week, um, and then it kind of uh, led into on-the-air stuff the fall of uh, 2000, doing uh, boys and or men's and women's soccer uh, during the fall, and then, of course, uh, men's and women's basketball during the winter, and then baseball that following spring. 
it's obviously not an easy gig to be on the air, but one would think that many students would want their fair shot to be behind the mic. So I'm kind of surprised that they, they, they were sending out feelers or flyers to say anybody can step up and, you know, take their shot at it. Were you up against well, anybody else in the, at that time? Well, I think the pro, there was there were some good voices there. Obviously, Frank Campisi and uh, and Jason Rowe uh, were two of the better play by play voices and, and analysts um, at SOU as as long as it's been there. But um, but I think the vetting process sort of takes care of itself because if you don't show up to your engineering shifts, if you don't you know learn the, the behind the board stuff and and all that, you're not going to get on the air. And I think a lot of people um, sort of filter themselves out um, because they don't want to do that stuff. So if you put the time in um, and you show, you know, you're, you're capable of, of speaking and you know, you put the time in to learn uh, the sports, the teams, uh, you're, you're going to get a shot. So when I say, you know, there's no vetting, you know, they'll basically put a bunch of people behind the board. And, you know, if, if you can't get past that and you want to be an on the air personality, it just won't happen. Well, I, I can only speak from experience. I know whole line has had its ups and downs. Sometimes it's kind of choppy post game and, uh, I, I always remember listening to you and Frank, and I felt like the quality uh, of the call and the, and the post game was was definitely at a different level compared to some of the other listens I've had over the years. I think the subject matter drove that because of the, especially the 2000 2001 season, because of the expectations, because of the the players and the personalities and all that stuff. You know that that drove great radio, and you know as as the hype was high, the calls were were very positive. As things turned the other way the calls went very negative and we had a lot of people on the air that were critical of the team critical of the coaching staff critical of the administration they you know for lack of better word they picked on-air fights with us uh, they were critical of us but, but they made good radio and um, I think the people that understood the team understood what we were trying to do we weren't going to pander to the team we weren't going to be homers we were going to call it like we saw it we were going to analyze the game just as anybody else would and uh, you know I think that's you know, that's, I think, sometimes where the Hall line hosts um, get a little bit off track. And it's tough to do as a college student, but, um, you know, you have to be critical. You have to be objective. And I think when you do that, you have good radio. Well, let's talk about expectations. Tom was kind of alluding to it at the top of the show, saying how, you know, there were very few teams that kind of coming into the season, the expectations were that high. And this was probably one of the, the top three, if not one of the, the most anticipated seasons. Uh, he, we talked a little bit about some of the players that were in that recruiting class, but we didn't really dive into it in, into too much detail. I mean, we had Eddie Griffin ranked second overall as an entire class. Barrett was, I believe, the number one rated point guard in his class, eighth overall in the country. And Marcus Toniel rounded out the class at, at number 26. And that was combined with returning players such as Ty Shine at the point. You had the Minnesota Bomber, Darius Lane. You had Sam Delambert. Most people remember him from his time in the NBA. They even had two other top 100 recruits on that roster, and Greg Morton and UNLV transfer Desmond Harad. So, I mean, that was probably one of the lo most loaded teams talent-wise on paper from a high school recruiting perspective than I've experienced in my time here. W give me some more expectations from, like, the whole line callers, your perspective going into that season. Well, obviously, Eddie Griffin comes in out of Roman Catholic in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia has been a hotbed of top collegiate talent for generations. Um, and, and he was really the, one of the big gets that year in terms of recruits. You know, he had offers to go to North Carolina, but it was really the relationship that Marcus Tony L had established with Andre Barrett and Eddie Griffin playing either AAU or summer ball or whatever it was. And the three of those guys developed a relationship and they basically decided amongst the three of them that, 
you know, they wanted to go play somewhere at the next level together. Um, they played very well, as I said, during AAU and summer leagues and in showcases and, and all that stuff. So, you know, and, and Marcus was really the, the social guy, the guy who, you know, was kind of the glue that brought Andre and Eddie together. So there's a story that um, Eddie was offered a scholarship to go to North Carolina, and he basically told North Carolina – I think it would, I think Dean Smith was still there. I know it was probably Bill Guthridge actually at the time, but um, he basically said, "If if you're not going to take Marcus, then I'm I'm not interested. If there's no spot for Marcus, then 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 neither am I." Which you know we had heard kind of anecdotally going into the previous year's recruiting season. You know that that story seems to be out there too. But you know, listen, Eddie Eddie and and Marcus and Andre, you know, were pretty hell bent on playing with each other. You know, but it was really Marcus that brought those guys together, and and between the three of them and the returning talent, uh, it just set up unprecedented expectations for that team. Yeah, that's that's what I heard. I heard that Marcus was basically the Pied Piper behind that entire class, but I didn't. And I heard rumors that you know Dre was pretty close to getting recruited by North Carolina. I didn't know the story that basically Eddie put all his cards on the table and said it's all three of us or none of us. That, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think a lot of it too. Eddie wanted to stay somewhat close to home. He was very close with his, um, with his cousin, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Marvin Powell, who actually passed away um, right after he left to go pro. You know, Eddie's father wasn't really around when he was younger, so Marvin was sort of his father figure, even though he was only about, I, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years older than he was. But, um, so, you know, Eddie, Eddie was, a, was a, a, you know, obviously trouble kind of followed him around. He was, he was, he was basically thrown out of school, required to complete his coursework at home. In order to graduate, so you know he had some trouble, but you know he was a family guy. He was a he was a very coachable player uh, by all accounts. Um, you know you'd hear that from you know Tommy Amaker would tell you that, and I think his NBA coaches would tell you that too. But but yeah, I think I think Eddie's heart was sort of to stay to stay in the area, and you know Seton Hall it was. Which is really interesting because you know nowadays we hear all the reasons and excuses why recruits will go elsewhere other than staying in the Northeast and. Marcus was down the street, if I'm not mistaken, at Seton Hall Prep too, was he not? Yeah, Marcus was was the local guy, um, and 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 again, it was just those guys playing summer league together or AAU together, um, and that's that's really where it came from. Mike, let's let's start talking about the season here. Walk us through um, any high points, low points, anything that sticks out in your mind as, hey, this is not necessarily going to go smoothly. If you don't mind, I'd, I'd like you to kind of start off with that game out in Illinois. I think it was Seton Hall was ranked eighth. Illinois was nine. It was like, you know, two weeks into the season. And I think we were the CBS national game that, that day as well. Yeah, it was a CBS national game. And picture this, too. It's the first Saturday of of the season where there's no college football. So now everybody's attention has turned from college football to college basketball. As you said, it's a Saturday afternoon game on CBS uh, you go out to Illinois, which is ranked in the top 10 at the time. You play a phenomenal first half um, in a very difficult place to play as a visitor at Assembly Hall. And, and, you know, they walk out of there at the end of the first half of whatever it was, 17 or 20. And everybody's thinking, you know, this is well worth the hype. This, this team is going places. And then, you know, the second half is, uh, you know, talk about the engine leaking oil. And they were fortunate to even get into overtime uh, when it just really fell apart. And that, that was really where I think people realized that, that there was something going on with the team. I, I don't think there was really any way you could say things were going to go the way they did because it was so early, so, so many young players trying to figure out how the talent meshed. But that was really an eye-opener, I think, for a lot of people. You know, they, they 
certainly had some small things that had happened earlier in games, games played prior to that. Um, nothing of, of great importance or significance, but, you know, just little things that, you know, you could see they beat, for example, they played Clemson. It was their first away game. It wasn't the greatest Clemson team, and they had a heck of a time, and they basically got lucky to get out of there with a win. Um, and, I, and I can just remember just they really didn't defend. Uh, they didn't care too much about team defense or, you know, help defense or any of that stuff. And again, at the second game of the season, chalk it up to an experience and not having had the opportunity to play together. But, um, you know, at the very least, you would have expected a little better defensive effort. Yeah, and Clemson wasn't a highly rated ACC team at that time. I, I do remember Andre getting kind of bailed out with a foul call, and he makes one out of two free throws, and they walked out with a one-point victory. I think it was like 79-78, something like that. And I agree. I mean, outside of that Illinois game, some of the non-conference games that were on their slate, you expected them to kind of, you know, find their own, but also put teams away. And I believe the, the very first game after that Illinois game was back home against uh, UPenn, and they had to basically yeah. win that game at the buzzer. I think Sammy put in like a, a put-back rebound for a two-point victory, and the place was like ecstatic because we had we had crowds that had never been there before. But I remember being like a, a season ticket holder, looking at my buddy next to me going, yeah, we we should have dominated that team. And Penn was with us the entire entire game. I mean, it wasn't like they came back. It was you know, they kind of ham and egged each other the entire time. And you know, Seton Hall would would you know go up you know five or six, and then Penn would cut it. And they, you know, they never really were able to to pull away. And you know, Penn did everything well in that game that Seton Hall did not. You know, it was it was the defense. It was it was the rebounding. It was just the you know the, the little things. That you know, in hindsight, as I said, they Penn did the things that Seton Hall did not do very well, and then that ultimately kept them in the game, and they almost won. So they make it through the non-conference. They win the the opener against Providence at home, and you know everything on on face value doesn't seem like the the wheels are coming off yet. They're ten and two. They head down to another, if I'm not mistaken, nationally broadcasted game against a ranked Georgetown team down in D.C., and they lose that game by twelve. I don't even feel like they were really in that game to that extent, but. What happens after the game is, is kind of really the headliner. Walk, walk me through kind of what you know about what went down there, because the stories are limited as to the truth of what really went down. Well, I think what had happened is, I think Tommy Amaker had tried to find ways to get Ty Shine in the game and, and try to get him to a point where he could come off the bench and really be the same player that he was the year before. And unfortunately, Ty was not one of the guys that came in with Andre and, and Marcus, and, and that really was the root, I think, of some factions on the team that uh, really was at the root of the, of the problem. So as, as I understand it, Ty had in the past not passed to Eddie Griffin at, at times when he had the chance to. This goes back to games even prior to Georgetown. And at one point during the Georgetown game, the same thing happened. Ty didn't pass the ball to Eddie. Um, and Eddie basically threatened him and said, uh, you know, if you look me off again, I'm, I'm you know, wait, wait to see what happens. So Sure enough, you know, the, the game the game ends. They, they go into the, the – first of all, they get blown out. I mean, they were completely outclassed by a Georgetown team that was 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 bigger, better rebounders, better defenders. I mean, they did, they did everything really well. And actually, that was probably, you know, arguably, you know, the best team in the Big East that year. But completely outclassed, they go into the locker room. And, you know, the next thing we hear is that there was a fight in the locker room. really wasn't much of a fight. Um, you know, Ty Shine got punched by Eddie Griffin. Kevin Wilkins, who uh, didn't see many minutes, but he was a senior forward, got into it and he retaliated against 
uh, Eddie. So, you know, one thing leads to another, and, and both Eddie and, and Kevin Wilkins get suspended for the game on, on that following Monday night when they play Notre Dame back at back at the Meadowlands. But, um, yeah, it was really the three freshmen in, in sort of one class, and then there was everybody else that was returning from the year before sort of on the other side. And, 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 that, and I think that that faction really was the, uh, the root of the trouble there. I mean, it makes sense, though. I mean, Ty has that game against Temple where he puts in 25. He was the focal point. Big shot after big shot. Uh, I think he hit, like, seven threes that game. So, I mean, I, I don't think he was expecting to play second fiddle to Barrett and giving up his starting point guard spot. It just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does. And, and you know, I don't know if you want to point – you know, the, the goal isn't to point fingers. You know, I think in, in hindsight you want to look at it and try to figure out what, what happened. But um, – Fair to say that Seton Hall doesn't beat Temple the year before if Ty's not on that team. But then you bring in one of the best point guards, and you're going to tell Andre Barrett that he's got to sit on the bench behind Ty Shine, who was a decent point guard. I mean, but he, you know, didn't really have the, you know, the, the experience of having run the offense for that team on a grand scale. So that really put Ty and Andre almost at the same spot. You know, Ty, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he started any games the year prior, maybe with the exception of the. Of the um, no, he got to start because Holloway sprained his ankle early in the in the Temple game. I mean, he was he was right. definitely not starting that year before, to my understanding. So. Right. So I think the only game he started was the Oklahoma State game, which they played, you know, in the Sweet Sixteen. So, you know, that puts basically Andre and Ty on the same footing. And uh, you know, as Tommy Amaker said, that Andre Barrett won the starting point guard job. That was when they came out of preseason. You know, he made that announcement. You know, and he also said that Ty was gonna was gonna get his fair share of minutes too, but. There were so many guys on that team that needed the rock in order to produce. That's what I was going to say. Ty felt like he was more of a lead guard, more than he was a true point guard, more than anything else, no? That's that's, that's a good way to put it, yep. Now, now most teams, after a a fight like that, would fall apart. It doesn't seem like we fell apart right away. Look, we still got a couple of big wins. We beat Syracuse. We beat Notre Dame. I believe in Notre Dame, as you mentioned, was uh, it was the next game w- without Eddie in the starting five. So that that's a positive. But then the wheels came off. Uh, what can you say about that? What what do you see happening there? You know, it, it's it's a little bit hard to say. I think you know once these guys kind of realized that things were starting to fall apart, I think there was a talk about who was going to go pro, and and I think it was a foregone conclusion that unless something shocking happened, which was a deep run into the NCAA tournament that Eddie was probably gone. And, you know, who went with him was, was kind of the second question, but you know, they, 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 they beat Syracuse and then they, and then they lose basically five or I should say whatever it was, eight out of nine, eight out of their next nine games, the exception of a win out at Notre Dame. And, and things just went progressively from, from, from bad to worse. And you know, there were no outward displays of, of trouble or players not getting along. It's just things didn't mesh. You know, they didn't, they didn't, there was virtually no team defense to, to speak of. Um, it was a lot of guys just trying, you know, up and down the floor, shooting the ball when nobody was anywhere near the, the rim to rebound it. You know, it was, it was just a lack of cohesion. Uh, everybody kind of did what they wanted to do, I think. And I don't think Tommy Amaker, and, and I don't think that his personality was fiery at all. And I think this team needed some sort of fiery leader, somebody to kind of control things. And Tommy just, just wasn't that way. I don't think. You know, his persona was was cut out for dealing with all these other personalities that were uh, at, at his feet. Uh, you know, and, and I think that just so, so many things, just little things, just 
snowballed and um, they just never could get it back on track. So I want to explore that some more because, I mean, as we watched the future years of, of Barrett and, and Marcus, I never got the perspective at all that they were selfish players. They were obviously leaders on those that team that made it to the NCAA tournament. You know, there was nothing about their personalities that we saw in the future that said, I'm after my own. So, I mean, was it Eddie? Was it a digression from that Georgetown game? Was it him as a player? Give me some. Give me your thoughts on that. I think there's a lot of guys on that team that, that you know were used to being the guy at wherever they were before, whether you know whether they're at their prep school or at at their high school or whatever. And I think you know when they came here, you know that that team concept was never really embraced by these guys, and maybe it was never taught to them. Um, and, and I think that as I said before, you, know, you got a lot of guys on this team that needed the ball, and and there was no point guard there with with experience to get them the ball at the right time. You know, I, I think that, let's put it this way, greatest world of worlds, Shaheen Holloway has one more year of eligibility and is the point guard for this team. And I can assure you that, that you can imagine the run that they would have made, but it would have all come back to how good the point guard was. You know, you had, as I said, you know, it was either Andre Barrett who had no collegiate experience or Ty Shine who had one game of collegiate experience running the point, you know, you needed kind of that floor general guy, that guy to take charge and, you know, make sure the offense runs itself, you know, just control things. And, and they missed that. And I think that, you know, from the, from an X's and O's, I think that was the foundation of, of where the trouble came from on the floor, you know, that aside from whatever was going on in, in the locker room. It's just interesting because when you get into discussions with other Seton Hall fans about who was the most talented player they've seen play, throughout the years, a lot of people put Eddie Griffin at the top of that list from a pure skill set perspective. I was watching him that year, and he, he was kind of one of the very first, like, true stretch fours. I mean, he took a lot of threes that year in addition to, you know, the rest of the stats that he put up. Give me your perspective on how talented he truly was and what we really didn't get to see because the team's success kind of kind of didn't happen. I, he certainly had the ability to shoot. There was no doubt about it. Um, he also could have, you know, if he really wanted to play in the paint, I think he could have been very effective there too. Um, but he didn't, um, he didn't, he was, he was dancing around the perimeter. Um, he was not doing a lot of the dirty work down below. And I think that was just a function of the offense, but you know, Eddie could do it all. You know, Eddie had the size to rebound. He had the, he had the skill to shoot. He, he could defend when he, when he needed to, he was, you know, he was a matchup nightmare. I mean, who do you, who do you assign to guard him? I mean, he's, he, he was too fast and too good a shooter. For, for a big man to guard, and he was, size-wise, you can't put a point guard on him because he, it's it's just a complete mismatch. So, you know, he, and physically he could do any, I mean, physically he was the best athlete on the floor, you know, of the 30 games or whatever they played that year, 25, 30 games, you know, he's probably the best athlete on the floor in 90% of them. That year alone, he had 133 blocks, which I believe is a single season record for a season uh, Seton Hall player. But it just didn't feel like those blocks were impactful, from my recollection. Yeah, you know, I think the impact of the block was was teams knowing that they needed to just, you know, avoid him. Just keep the ball away from him, keep the shooter away from him. But a lot of times blocks don't result in turnovers. You know, a lot of times blocks disrupt the offense and, you know, they're not... I, I don't believe that the block is, is as valuable as, as as some might believe. That's That's my own feeling, but... Uh, but he was he was a presence, and at least at the very least, 
teams had to account for him on the on the defensive end because of because of all those blocks. But yeah, I mean, just watching. Well, the other thing too is I don't want to make it. Set, I don't want to be critical of the fact that he would, this, but he would, you know, he would kind of cherry pick from from time to time. And and you know, is 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 that what he was asked to do, or or was that the easiest thing for him? to do so he chose to do it you know again but but there's there's no arguing his athleticism and size was was a huge factor i kind of think that's where i was getting at it felt like he was hunting blocks more than getting the blocks in the flow of the game protecting the rim i remember there's a lot of times it, it seemed like he was at a position in the attempt to get a block and then the the interior defense would literally just crumble and give up easy buckets to the opponent yeah i, I don't know what came first on that i don't know whether he was out of position because he he got himself out of position or someone else was, and he, you know, accounted elsewhere. I, it's hard to say, but defensively they were a mess. Um, and, and whether it was his doing or somebody else's is Tommy Amaker and, and, you know, Fred Hill could sit here and tell you what the, how that happened. Well, you know, so the season's spiraling. The team is playing for itself uh, for individually. There's got to be a lot of tensions. Uh, are you feeling any tension in the booth when this is all happening? So I think as a, a college radio announcer, it's it's pretty easy to root for your team. And, um, you know, we tried to play it down the middle. You know, we tried to be critical. We tried to be objective. We tried to tell the listener what we saw. And we tried not to, you know, paint it in blue and white. I think we were very critical um, of, of players. And, um, you know, I think that kind of led to some great radio on Hall Line. I, I think it also ruffled some feathers in the athletic department at, at Seton Hall. And um, we, were, we were called into the athletic director's office to talk to him about that after a particularly uh, tough but fair interview of, of Fred Hill on uh, one of our Sunday night shows. Um, I think they thought that we were being unfair with Fred and unnecessarily critical of the team. And um, we, were, uh, we were summoned to the athletic director's office to talk to him about it. Got summoned to the principal's office. So what kind of questions was uh, were you asking Fred? I mean, what 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 ruffled his feathers? Yeah, I think we just wanted to know what was what was going on because this was after the whole fight. This this was after things had gone south. Yeah, they you know they're in they're in this this losing streak where they you know they they aren't playing defense. Um, they're they're sloppy on both ends of the floor. So we're just trying to get we're just trying to get answers. And I think we kind of caught Fred off guard because the athletic department was nice enough to allow him to go on the student radio station where I think they probably expected we were going to lob softballs at him for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. And, and, uh, you know, we, we got on him pretty good. And I, and I, I forget it was a Sunday night. And I think if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was after we got back from, uh, it's, it's hard. It might, it might've been right after the Rutgers loss. Um, yeah, they got blown out of the Rutgers, if I'm not mistaken, didn't they? You know, it wasn't, they were, they really weren't, in the game, and and that was kind of when things hit the fan. I, I might be mistaken on the dates. This is you know this is a generation ago, guys. We're you know we're not young anymore. Don't have the, the memories that we had. But I, I, you know, I, but can, I, I can refresh it if you want. It, it was late February, as you mentioned. They lost seventy five fifty seven at, at the rack. Yeah, I think we got yelled at before then. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say they had more patience, but I uh, I, I I don't. I want to say it was sometime either in, in late January or, uh, or early February. So, so that they did lose to Rutgers at home that season as well. So it, it, that, that might have been the game that you're referring to. Yeah, that, that could be. So could what, be. what was the outcome of your, uh, of your talking to? Well, you know, they, they questioned our background. Um, they, they questioned who – the question that I'll, I'll never forget is, who are you to criticize these boys? And, um, you know, we kind of 
the three of us were there and 20, 21 years old, and we've never been through anything like this before. And we didn't really realize what had happened until after we'd, we'd walked out of his office and kind of went back up into the station. And, you know, we went and told the faculty director who called the, uh, the dean of the communications school, who we went to meet with the next day. And, bas- you know, we, we basically had our um, media passes. Uh, they threatened to, to take away the media passes and our ability to cover the games. And, we, and that, I think, was what sent the communications Dean over the edge. He's, he's like basically unequivocally said we had his complete and total support. That you know we did nothing inappropriate, and uh, that he would take it up with the athletic department. And that was the last that we that we heard. And we were sort of a little bit later apologized to on behalf of the athletic director by one of the associate ADs. Um, but I think it just underscored just a, a lot of disappointment and, and a lot of you know what I think was uh, sour grapes. About how the season had gone, and you know, basically, basically by then the writing was was on the wall, and and, and nobody was happy. Well, I, I I do recollect you and Frank getting in a couple of final parting shots towards the one of the last games of the season as you wrapped up a broadcast. I, I do remember that. You know, it's one of those things. It's um, you, I I know that I would never get get into the position where I would speak to someone like that that was that was young, and it was not a let's put it this way it was it was not a constructive meaning, nor nor was it meant to be constructive. Or, um, it was just. <laughs> it was absolutely, and I, you know, but a lot of it was, you know, a lot of it were, were reacting to calls on Hall Line, and um, you know, we can't control what what these people are saying, and you know, I, it was. Um, listen, I, I'm I'm glad that we treated it the way we did. I, I'm glad that we were fair, and I'm glad that we were we were uh, objective about it. And uh, looking back on it, you know, I, it was it was a good experience. It was a funny experience. It was uncomfortable at the time, but uh, yeah, definitely one to remember. All right, so there's a couple more uh, speed bumps on this roller coaster. Let, let's kind of let's kind of wrap up the end of the season here. So, the team actually puts some of this talent that we talked about together and wins the first two games of the Big East tournament. Uh, both double-digit victories. They beat St. John's in the opening round, and then they blew the doors off of a Georgetown team that was ranked in the top twenty, and then they. Yeah. They had a semifinal date three nights in a row with BC, Troy Bell, Conference Player of the Year, and they were basically hung till you know through the first half of them. Did you think that team at that moment was going to complete this run and find a way into the NCAA tournament? They had played good first halves a lot of times during the season, and when other teams made adjustments, we couldn't respond. You know, the Boston College game was kind of funny. It kind of kept thinking in the back of your mind that you know this is this is you know we, we started fairly well and as you said we hung in and you know you, you kind of knew that this this boston college team was tremendous and troy bell was arguably the best team player in the conference but you kind of knew that game was going to get away from you um we think of ryan and ultimately they had ryan sydney in the backcourt on my team did they not yeah sydney was good and then i forget the there, were, there was the tolson uka Agbai or something like that uka, i i can't uka remember Agbai, correct you and they also had xavier singleton and, and kenny harley on that team so I see. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad you've prepared with copious notes here. I, I hope this hasn't taken away from your family time preparing for this. But but yes, it was, this is all off the deep. top of Mike's head. He's a walking encyclopedia of basketball knowledge. You got to do what you got to do for the Seton Hall podcast, don't you? This is true. But you know, again, this this Boston College team was everything that Seton Hall was not. You know, you had a you had a a great point guard ran the team to a T and, and there was a lot of talent there. And, you know, we, we kind of ham and egged it, you know, and they had a system. And I, and I think at the end of the day, you know, that, that system proved its effectiveness. Well, it's interesting because that, that team was 13 and three first place in the Big East regular season. And other than Troy Bell, I don't remember, you know, any of those names having any kind of NBA skill set. And we're talking about all the talent that Seton Hall had. And three of those guys went on to play in the NBA. I think it just, again, it underscores the, 
the uh, value of, of cohesiveness and um, uh, good coaching. Al Skinner was the coach for that team. He was the coach for some very good Boston College teams. But but again, I think they had the they had the point guard and they played unselfish and it was just a cohesive brand of basketball. It was unfortunately not. It was the opposite of, of, of what we were. All right. So speaking of coaching, now, now the season comes to an end. They bow out in the first round of the NIT, and it didn't take long. But uh, Tommy walks out the back door. Was was there any rumblings throughout this uh, the eight game, eight out of nine game losing streak, or some of the turmoil that the writing was on the wall, or did this kind of hit the program suddenly? Uh, I think there was a little bit of writing on the wall, and if you if you remember back, I, I think it was at it was I want to say it was after our freshman year. It was after Tommy's first year. Uh, the Michigan job came open at that time uh, when when Steve Fisher left, and they ultimately hired uh, Brian Ellerby, who was one of his assistants, and it was ultimately Ellerby who was succeeded by Amaker anyway. But um, there was rumors at that time that Tommy. Amaker was a candidate for the Michigan job, and I think that after the uh, LRB situation kind of ran its course, um, Tommy seemed to be a logical fit. He was he was a Duke guy, so he had the Shashevsky pedigree. Um, he had done good things at, at Seton Hall. Obviously, the Sweet 16 trip the year before, you know, with things falling apart in 2000, 2001. But I, but I, you know, I think that you know, there's there's when you're the head coach. At sort of a middle of the road school, a middle of the road school in any conference, and Seton Hall, I think, fits that profile. I think any time that coach has some success, you know, that's the kind of guy that fits the profile for some of these some of these top jobs. So it was, uh, but we we heard some rumblings that Michigan was probably going to let Ellerby go, and that Tommy Amaker would be one of the people they'd consider, and and it made a lot of sense because of what his name had been mentioned a couple of years before that. Um, so when we heard it, we kind of said, you know, it's kind of a logical fit. It wouldn't be shocking. And, and, and then sure enough, he uh, meets with the Michigan AD in the airport lobby or whatever, no, I get, and uh, I, I get he's it. gone. I mean, people were saying that Tommy was going to use the Seton Hall job as a springboard from, from day one as well. I, I remember that when I first came there as a freshman. But it's not like he lit the world on fire outside of the Sweet 16 run. I mean, all three of the teams outside of the team that made it to this week's 16 were 500 at best. And he's he's putting together, the, trying to pick up the pieces from the season that we just described that kind of went off the rails. So was it really just the Coach K, you know, coaching tree that kind of gets him the job? I think it's a lot of things. I think, though, I, I, I think that meeting that they had back in, I guess it would be 97 or 98, I think, I think that kind of started the process. I think it kind of got Tommy on the radar for Michigan, and I don't think they ever, uh, I don't think they ever went away from that. I think that, you know, when they saw what he did getting that team to the Sweet 16, and, and listen, they were Darius Lane making a couple of baskets away from going to the Elite Eight. Um, you know, granted that Shaheen Holloway and Kalkanis were George Blaney guys, but, you know, he also brought in Ty, he also brought in Darius. Lane, I you know I, I think he did a very good job with that Sweet 16 team, and I thought that you know he's young, he's you know in his late 30s, you know he'd go to Michigan and, and be there for a long time. That makes sense, and you're playing my heartstrings there, talking about Darius putting up a couple more threes or putting a couple threes to the basket. Please don't remind me of the the two of 16. I think Ty went two of 10 to go with it. I mean, we're talking about four of 28 combined. I mean, one or two more, and that, and that team is a step away from the Final Four. They were they were right in that game too, and uh, so yeah. But some somewhere in some gym, Darius is still trying to shoot himself out of it. <laughs> oh, Mike, thanks so much for all this information. Um, we do have a a parting uh, portion of the interview that we like to call "Walking the Plank." Walking the Plank is going to be five quick fire questions that we'll ask you, and we're just looking for one or two word answers. No need to elaborate. 
Uh, are you ready, sir? Uh, yes, this sounds a lot like the last job interview I went on. So, yeah, I look forward to this. All okay. right, rapid fire, coming at you. Question one, what was the best venue to call a game at? Carrier Dome. Worst location to call a game at? The worst location that I went to, geez, that's a great question. It was great to be at Madison Square Garden, but when you're up near the roof, it's uh, it's tough. Um, so I have mixed feelings, but great to be at the Garden, but a tough place to call a game. Best game you've ever called? Uh, best game we ever called was was probably um, that, uh, that Notre Dame win. Coming right off of the Georgetown loss with the with the punch. Best player you saw firsthand that season, pirate or opponent? Pirate or opponent? That's a heck of a question. Georgetown had a power forward by the name of Lee Scruggs, who was tough as nails, could rebound, could shoot. Probably wasn't a top fifty player in the Big East that year, but he uh, he gave Seton Hall fits. He was. He was tremendous. I don't know why he stands out. There was also a great point guard at Providence by the name of John Linehan, who was as good as a defender um, as, as, I've, as I've ever seen. All right, last question. What rivalry game would you want to call any two teams, any venue? Any two teams, any venue. Um, I'm going to throw out anybody in the ACC because they're all traitors. Um, that's, a, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, Georgetown-Syracuse game or a St. John's Georgetown game from from back in the heyday in the uh, you know, late '80s, early '90s when the when when the Big East was so when Mullen, was great. Mullen and Ewing were actually playing, not coaching. Uh, yes, yes. I, I don't think actually either of you two are old enough to remember any of those games. Do, I do, am. Do you really want to go down this road, Mike? You have walked the plank. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been a great interview. I think uh, I thank you wholeheartedly for taking some time out of your day and. and away from your family here to, to talk with us. Uh, thanks again. My pleasure. Hopefully you guys don't lose too many listeners from it, but thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. Mike McEnany. Mike, if I do say so myself, that was a fantastic interview. Uh, at, at least the uh, who we interviewed was interesting. As always, I had a lot of fun. I mean, Mike brought a lot of interesting nuggets to the table, and his insights on Eddie was, was kind of what I was looking for, but there's there's so much there behind the scenes with Eddie. I'd, I'd love to even just do a podcast where we just dive into his life and you know, his, his troubled times and what he brought to the, the Pirates. You do a whole segment on him by, by himself. All right, so quick thank yous before we take off here. I uh, want to sh- send a shout-out to our sponsor, Chocolate Toast Studios, whose goal is to promote multicultural diversity through character development. If you like children's books, if you like comic art, if you like any of that, or you just want to take a look at something you've never seen before, go check out Chocolate Toast Studios, now with a new online store. Also... Follow us on Twitter at LC Pirates. Special thanks to our first follower at Seton Hall fan, who actually became our first promoter of sorts. He basically doubled our listens after mentioning us in his tweet. So thank you very much. He has been Mike Dizzy Dezera. I've been Tommy Chokoharski. We are the Left Coast Pirates.